Welcome to Advantage Over, the only global rugby podcast to help you become a better referee. Your host today is Keith Lewis. Are you ready? Time on. Well, joining me today on the podcast is um, a gentleman from uh, New Zealand. Um, you'll hear it from him in a second. Mike Hester is the Participation Development Manager for the New Zealand Rugby. Um, Mike uh, um, has a little bit of a refereeing background, but according to Wikipedia, and I might get him to validate this in a minute, um, not a rugby refereeing background, um, but historically, um, former Royal Navy, um, mainly in logistics, HR, people development and things like that. Um, but then, as I said, from a football refereeing perspective, was a um, a referee of some repute heading to World Cups in um, South Africa and the Olympics in Beijing. But um, I suspect we could have a whole podcast on that subject on a different day. But um, we're here today to talk about um, what New Zealand are doing when it comes to the coming season and some law variations that are in play. So, Mike, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, and was all that true? Is that the same Mike Hester? <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, so for my sins, I um, grew up in another sport from a young age and then uh, sort of in my late 20s decided to give uh, refereeing a go after many years of trying to help referees uh, and then sort of got the bug and and then embarked on a whole new sort of adventure through community into uh, talent programs and then high performance and was very fortunate to, to referee FIFA level for about five years and, uh, and made it to a couple of sort of pinnacle events which were tremendous experience so um, have you know really strong affiliation for you know, the demands uh, of refereeing, um, particularly in sort of team sports where there's, you know, lots of judgment, uh, subjective judgment required around situations. And uh, in more recent years, I've had to learn how to referee rugby as my children have come through uh, our small blacks models, uh, sort of under fives through to under 13. So sort of had to pick up officiating in another sport. Fantastic. So switching to the, to the day job, obviously participation development manager, um, can you give us a little bit about what the role covers and maybe because most listeners to the podcast are, are um, in the north um, a little bit about New Zealand rugby in general of course we all know about the All Blacks we all know about the, the super rugby sides but what underneath that how does it all work? Yeah so I've been with New Zealand rugby for about five years now um, recruited into essentially what is a new role of participation development and up until that point um, the, the strength of the game here in New Zealand was such that sort of it wasn't really a, a strong need for a focus on participation development. The, uh, we always had really strong numbers uh, from age group right through to senior rugby and really integrated model um, from community through to professional. Um, but in, in the last sort of decade or so, as other parts of the world have experienced, we've started to see some trends, um, some positive, but also some negative that, that needed sort of a more centred approach. And so um, I was brought in to... Um, uh, lead a piece of work around sort of moving from a really game-centred view of what rugby needs to look like to a more participant-centred view where we're trying to make the game fit the players as opposed to make the players fit the game. Um, New Zealand is in a really um, interesting space. We've got huge growth in girls and women, so we're, we're wrestling with um, how do we respond to that um, and massive opportunity off the back of, you know, really successful World Cup and a slightly fortuitous uh, result in the, in the final, some might say, uh, in the last last few minutes there. But um, uh, we're also a, a nation that's going through quite a lot of demographic changes. So one in four New Zealanders is not born in New Zealand. And so the way the game has been passed from generation to generation um, is starting to be threatened. Uh, and so we need to think about um, how do we grow the game from, from um, that perspective as well. And in some ways, we're actually looking at some developing nations and looking to copy with pride in terms of what they're doing as they look to grow the game with 
with new new participant groups. Um, my role is essentially around growing the game, particularly from a player base. Um, so that covers youth, juniors, teenagers, right through to senior. Um, and the game at the moment is is still in really um, uh, really good health. We have um, we probably we're one of the biggest sports in New Zealand, not not quite the biggest. I mean, um, but around the hundred and forty to hundred fifty thousand player mark, which is on par with the football and netball, which are the sort of main other sports in, in New Zealand, uh, particularly in the winter. Um, uh, so I also look after um, uh, the really deliberate focus on girls and women, and also Māori rugby was uh, a really unique part of our of our game. Um, and so that's kind of the day job, and I lead a, a team of eight working with our sort of 26 provincial unions in that community space. Cool. So, so underneath Super Rugby teams that we know, you just mentioned the provincial unions, there's 26 provincial regions, you say? Yeah, that's right. So five Super franchises, 26 provincial unions, um, and then around 450 rugby clubs and about 250 to 300 secondary schools that deliver the teenage rugby um, for us at sort of 13 to 18 years old. And your average community rugby club down there would have two teams, three teams, four plus a junior section. What does that sort of? Yeah, so um, probably the biggest club we would have would be up around the eight hundred to a thousand mark across junior and senior. Um, and then the junior clubs are usually um, I've got a lot more depth and strength, um, and just as in terms of the way that the community system runs uh, in New Zealand, teenage rugby is all played in secondary school, so they don't play in in club at all. So there is a separation as they move from uh, club into secondary school and then and back to club. And and that's one of the touch points, but it's proven to be really challenging is about how do we engage typically teenage boys back into rugby clubs. And, and that's not a new issue for, for many around the world. Um, so most, um, you know, the club I'm at uh, with my children, you know, we have um, probably about 20, 20 junior teams and then about four, about three to four senior teams across different grades. Um, a grade that's really strong in this country is our weight-restricted adult grade, under 85s, and um, that's um, been something that we've been really trying to supercharge over the last three years with some new initiatives around that. As I said, that's under 85 kilograms. Um, yeah, under and- 85 kilograms, just to clarify, not under 85 <laughs> years of age. <laughs> and, and that operates at both junior level and senior level, is that right? Yeah, so we have, um, in this country, we have weight-restricted or biobanding by age and weight um, all the way through to secondary school in many parts of the country. Um, so my own children play in a weight, age and weight restricted grade, um, which is appropriate for them. Um, that runs all the way through to secondary school. It differs by provincial union to provincial union based on their demographics. And then in the adult space, there is a little bit of weight restricted rugby, which is predominantly the under 85 grade, which um, we, we've looked to really try and supercharge over the, over the next few years as well. And, and is, the, is the point of weight, banded around safety or is it included what's the what's the driver behind going down a weight banded route and there's obviously a link to that question to the the subject we're going to talk about yeah so weight restricted rugby um certainly in the junior and secondary school space as kids are going through different levels of maturation um particularly with sort of the ethnic diversity we have of um pacifica maori and european and to to some degree asian um participation you know all coming at it from sort of different um, sort of different physical attributes. Um, Weight-restricted rugby, particularly in that junior secondary school space, uh, provides an opportunity for more 
sort of balanced competition um, where um, it, it still uh, emphasises um, the way we want to play. So um, continuity, moving the ball, fast, open game, uh, whereas if you have massive um, uh, imbalances in terms of uh, weight, um, you can um, not get quite the result that you want and it's not as appealing, particularly for, for junior or smaller players. Um, in the adult space, it's got its own culture in that, um, one, there's a preference to play um, in more balanced competitions by those participants um, because it's it's just a little bit less physical. It's no less competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, what they may lack in terms of size, they certainly make up for enthusiasm and, and vigour and, um, and, and playing time. Um, but there's also a style of of play that you then see in that grade because they're all 84.9 kilos essentially and so you see a lot more ball and play they don't have the ability to to bust through the midfield per se and so you see the ball in the air a lot being moved around and so that's a it's a style of play that's really appealing and attractive um and kind of fits the kiwi dna to some degree and so for those that play it and those that support it they, they find it a really engaging way to watch the game and um what we are working on at the moment is um, some innovation around how to uh, provide that as a pathway for, for secondary school um, players out of their own 85 grades into those clubs that offer it at the adult level because it's a really smooth transition um, as opposed to maybe going to a Colts um, setup where you're then in open weight, which might be your first ever experience of playing open weight rugby. I was going to say, what happens to, to people, either juniors or seniors, when they hit over perhaps after Christmas or after the summer when you hit 85.1? Yeah, well, they've uh, they've got their very, they've, very, they've got their really strong rituals uh, at, at the adult level, and that you weigh in every game, and so there's a real um, a real discipline around it, and so they really pride themselves on being able to make weight every week, and some of them have a bit of work to do from Thursday night to Saturday <laughs> one o'clock. Uh, so, but it's a you know it's part of their rituals and part of their traditions of how they play, and they um, they feel really strongly about that, and so that's that's certainly something that we we acknowledge as an important custom. But outside of that, it, it, everyone everyone above 85 kilograms plays in the normal system. There's, there's plenty of rugby for them. It doesn't exclude anyone. No, but yeah, there's pl- plenty of opportunity at various levels. You know, we are um, you know, we are quite geographically spread out at times. So yeah. there are some some teams that sort of struggle a little bit to to find you know good competitions. So some have to travel more than they would like. Um, but that's also part of the adventure, and, and there's lots of memories that come with travelling. So. Uh, some some welcome there as well. Right, so very useful scene, Seth. Thanks, Mike, for for walking us through that. So let, let's look at what we're doing for twenty your twenty twenty three season. Um, New Zealand rugby has always been looking at, at law change. There's often been domestic um, experimental laws in play. Do you want to walk us through where you are and what your focus is for twenty twenty three? Yeah. So for the last three years, we've been really focused on how do we make the game safer, but also more appealing. And we think those two things go hand in hand. Wayne Smith, who recently just finished as the director of rugby for the Black Ferns, he, he would often say um, that the best, te- best techniques are often the safest ones. And so that's sort of um, been a part of the philosophy around how we move forward in terms of how do we make the community game still retain all the identities and characteristics and the things that are really important to participants, but also make it um, accessible given they're not professional athletes. They're not training more than once or twice a week. Um, there's a reason why they're playing in the community space. And you can get some imbalances in the community space, which you don't always see in the professional space, given the, the amount of preparation and investment that goes into those professional athletes. So in our um, context, um, we have um, obviously World Rugby Law 
and then New Zealand Rugby operates Optic Safety Law, which um, we use to um, shape the game that we need for um, for, for five-year-olds uh, right through to um, teenagers or up to under 19. And then in some instances, we also use it in the senior space. And a lot of the community now, even before these innovations we've been contemplating for the last few years, have always played under some form of domestic safety law variation, which might be around restrictions around the scrum, um, maybe around restrictions in playing time, um, even um, the um, introduction of game on um, applies across a lot of the country. Um, in terms of um, what we've been doing around um, um, safety between the lines, the, the focus the last couple of years has been around the tackle um, and around the breakdown. And we've had uh, a sort of a philosophy of um, trying to be really experimental, uh, leap and learn. Um, we've been a bit measured about who we've worked with. So we've worked a lot to the teenage space um, uh, and then in the last 12 months, a little bit more into the, into the senior space. But the focus has been on um, how do we um, create a uh, safer game, but also in terms of making a game that's a lot more appealing. So last year we uh, experimented with uh, tackle constraint, which lowered the line of the tackle um, under current law from the shoulders uh, down to the sternum. Um, colloquially, it's known as sort of the belly or tackling uh, around the belly, but the official line is, is the sternum, which is um, just just the um, just the, the bottom of your sort of chest plates there. And the the purpose of that was to um, try and um, get players into better positions to, to, to make tackles, um, take more time getting their, um, their heads in the right place um, to successfully execute tackles, uh, which um, we have believed for a long time will lead to a safer result, both for the, the ball carrier, but also the tackler. Um, but also uh, from making the game a, a lot more appealing is create the opportunity for more um, offloads um, more opportunity for the ball to be contested on the ground if it's not necessarily locked up by that first uh, that first tackler um, so we experimented with that last year uh, across a number of different grades and the feedback we got uh, from our participants uh, once we ran sort of our surveys and evaluated the results uh, were really uh, reaffirming around the fact that a um, uh, large percentage of those surveyed and we had a really good response to our survey work um, uh, firmly believe that you know, safety of both the ball carrier and the tackler was significantly um, enhanced by reducing the, the height of the tackle. This year we've um, put in place uh, continuation of that trial and then extended it across the entire community game so that that will mean probably around 120, 130,000 players will be playing under that um, tackle constraint uh, this year and um, it's a slight variation of what we did last year based on um, observation, feedback, and also that regard for safety around, um, you know, rugby's a contact and collision sport. It's quite fluid and dynamic. Um, last minute or last second changes in body position can mean a lot. And so what we're really conscious of is that um, it's not as simple as just the first tackler. There's also other bodies and how do we accommodate for them? So the net result is that we have a tackle um, or game innovation um, around the tackle height and that the first tackler must tackle um, below the sternum um, uh, in order to, um, in accordance with uh, domestic safety law. The second tackler or subsequent tacklers can tackle at the current uh, line of the shoulders as per um, World Rugby law. And the rationale for that is that um, we feel that that will create this, the, the space for the second tackler to, to be able to make a a legal uh, tackle uh, without necessarily being put into a more compressed zone where they might then come into contact with that first tackler's head, particularly around the back. 
And we saw a number of examples last year in professional rugby of what we would call friendly fire, where the two tacklers, both coming at the same height, ended up uh, colliding heads and suffering concussions uh, on uh, the, the other side of, of the, the ball carrier. Um, so the, the theory is to create a sort of a, a two-tiered two approach in terms of that tackle, um, that attempt to tackle. Um, one of the hypotheses that we'll be looking to test this year is that if the ball carrier uh, goes into contact and the first tackler does tackle below the sternum um, and that, uh, that ball carrier takes the advantage to offload, there may be less frequency of a, of a second tackler because the ball's already moved. Um, time will tell about that, but if that's the case, that, that might then again also reduce the incidence of, of um, uh, potential head collisions. And, and, and talking of the, the instances of concussion there, that's obviously a big driver for what we're, we're seeing. These conversations happening all over the world. Obviously, there's, there's proposals in play in, in the north. There's, there's already a trials in play in some countries. France, for example, obviously England are, um, are looking at England, Scotland, Wales. We're all potentially looking at uh, other height tackles. Is, does the injury data that you've seen or player injury data in, in New Zealand, has that impacted or led to where you've decided to go to sternum as opposed to, to lower than that? Yeah, we are conscious of a number of other trials been undertaken um, that have already occurred or there is um, current uh, interest in trialling, continuing to trial in that area. And so um, we have taken those into account. Um, we are continuing to contribute to the body of evidence with more analysis of you know, our tackle data. Um, we're part of a number of different studies. We've got a big one happening in um, Otago at the moment around mouthguards uh, mm -hmm. and, and monitoring the, the impact of um, uh, force, et cetera, and the collisions. And so there's a number of pieces of work that we've been able to leverage off. Um, early indications are that the tackles that are in that mid-drift zone um, are less likely to produce concussions based on the evidence we've seen so far. It's not necessarily conclusive because it hasn't been a direct study, but there is more sure. work being put into studying um, what is the likely um, chances of, um, of head contact uh, that occur based on tackle height. And so um, that's that'll continue to be a focus and we'll be looking to code a lot of the data that we see this year. But certainly the evidence we've seen so far suggests that um, between the sternum and the waist, um, uh, seems to have a less likely occurrence of a concussion. And in your trials that you've already conducted from, from the last couple of years, has there been any issues with the ball carrier? And, and therefore, if we bring the ball carrier's head down or they're dropping into contact, does that has that created any issues in terms of head-to-knee issue, head-to-hip, um, rather than head-to-shoulder, which is the current drive to, to move down? Have you seen any of that? Not, not so far, um, but I think we need to continue to monitor that because the reality is, you know, there is such a fluid game uh, and uh, as um, particularly in certain parts of the field where players are getting lower and lower when they're carrying the ball, um, you know, what, what kind of implications does that create, both in terms of safety, but also for referees who have to adjudicate on the pictures that they're seeing. And so that will be a particular focus. One of the things we were discussing just today is, um, where do uh, where on the field do the majority of our um, tackles occur? Where we're trying to deal with uh, with the issues we're, we're wrestling with through this tackle constraint, um, and it may well be that you know a lot, a lot of the midfield is where actually the big issues are. Whereas close to the line, it's a slightly different story. Um, you don't have the same sort of collisions mm. uh, happening at speed because you have speed, one you have line of defence is stationary trying to guard the line. 
whereas the others are trying to pick and go. So these are all the things that we'll be continuing to pick apart in the study to see, you know, is there any significance of where things are occurring and where tackle constraints are really playing out uh, in a positive way, whereas in other ways they're inconsequential. Cool. So, so for the New Zealand trial for this year in the community game is around is is only on the first tackler. Is there, are there any restrictions in play for the ball carriers? Like in France, you're not allowed to. Like they call it throw the bust forward. Is the is the is, is the English translation? But they're not allowed to dip into contact. Um, there's no restriction on the ball carrier for you. No, not at this stage. And we'll continue to monitor that space. We. Um, and there's people who have a lot more expertise in this sort of area of you know, the physiology of ball carriers and things like that. But the, mm-hmm. but the, obviously the, um, the athletic tilt that you see with ball carriers is, is kind of part of that natural positioning to run upright uh, into contact is probably going to be a very hard sort of tendency to fight. So we'll watch that with interest and see what happens in the New Zealand context. Um, but it's certainly part of the, the complexity is, you know, it's not just about the tackler. Uh, it's, you know, what, what are the obligations on the ball carrier? And you use the word athlete there, which, which pops another question into my mind. At, at what point does this kick in? So from a, is it, is it, this goes under, is it MPC level? Is, and, and under effectively around the game? And yeah. therefore, are, are yep. you guys comfortable that there's now going to be a difference in game between the community game and the professional game above it? We are for the time being, because the reality is that we know that um, without trying these things, we're never going to know. Yeah. And to some degree, um, we've worked our proposals through with our high-performance team, who are really encouraging of, of the exploration of what this might look like. Um, they see um, the safety value of what we're trying to, to do in the community space. They also think that there is a opportunity that we, we may want to consider um, in terms of production of you know, talent to come through. So time will tell about that, but certainly there's been some really strong collaboration between us and our high performance talent ID people around what we're trying to do and and, and making sure that um, we aren't going on sort of diverging paths about developing uh, players for them as well as you know, providing a safe and appealing community game. Uh, and you guys announced this at the back end of November, December before uh, last year, so there's plenty of time for people to get um their headspace into headspace into this um their heads into the into the right space mentally about this than fit then physically in pre-season how has it gone down well so when we posted the story on rugbyrefree.net um and it got so i could see it literally being circulated around new zealand and the facebook groups there was plenty of this the the expected feedback that this is the game's going soft we need to get away from this why don't we just add tag belts in and, and go back to ripper rugby and, and those sorts of things there's always an emotional reaction to change, but how have how have you seen it that develop through the sort of change curve? Now you're into well into pre-season there, and people are starting to get their heads around it. Are you getting a good reaction? Are you still getting feedback on it? Yeah, so we had our changes approved at the end of September, and we um, went through a really deliberate comms approach with our participants, in particular coaches, players, referees, um, in October, November. Um, and we had three uh, game innovations that we communicated to them. Tackle height. Um, we have um, a restriction for the halfback, the opposing halfback at the scrum mm-hmm. um, around not being able to, or being offside if they go beyond the tunnel. And then the third one is around um, some scrum restrictions uh, for sort of lower community grades. This was off the back of a series of changes we put in in 21 um, and then in for 22. And so... To some degree, we're a little bit more advanced than others in terms of community change plans. So the reaction we got 
in 21 around some of the changes we were contemplating was quite extreme uh, and very similar to what you've sort of just repeated. Um, whereas what we um, have signaled for 23, certainly when we signaled at the end of last year, um, sort of six months out from the beginning of the season, um, has been a lot more muted. Um, and because the participant voice, we've been able to leverage off the participant voice about saying this is the right thing to do, and in fact you need to do more of this, that has been really powerful in terms of gaining acceptance. Um, as you would expect, there's been some really passionate views about what, what does this mean for the game. Um, and I guess what we would say is that the game actually throughout its entire history has been evolving. Um, I, I imagine the same things were being thrown up once rucking. We got rid of rucking you know, 20 years ago, whenever it was, and uh, when scrummaging became a real thing in the 60s, uh, I imagine that that was a turning point in the game too. So if it had social media then, I'm pretty sure they would have been hearing lots about it then. So there is a degree of, um, you know, change management you've got to work through with your community. Um, we feel at this stage that we've had really good acceptance. But having said that, we're not taking it for granted because sometimes people don't see change until they see it or feel it. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going through a process now of recommunicating the changes um, that we've got in place for the season. Um, but so far, so good. Um, and, you know, I think that's off the back of, you know, a number of years of change now. So we've, our change the level of change, um, fitness, so to speak, in our community, I think is starting to grow. Yeah, and and your ref in the referee community there are part and parcel of that, I would assume. Yeah, they are. And I mean, they're really critical because the reality is, you know, they're the ones that need to see the pictures. They need to adjudicate um, mm -hmm. the situations. They need to reinforce the law um, and be supported in doing so. And so some of the early season effort will be around making sure that they feel really well supported about, um, you know, hitting that as a target. Um, what has been challenging for the refereeing groups uh, over the last couple of years is that we've had some a number of trials happening in different grades. And yeah. so it has meant on Saturday there's been a lot of adjustment to what am I refereeing today, whereas we're now in a position where we're able to roll out quite confidently um, within reason, um, uh, commu whole community-wide changes, which means that's the top. It's the same from the top to the bottom. Um, every club game that will run from May through to, or from April, sorry, through to uh, late July will be um, under the same um, experimental domestic safety law variation around tackle height. So it'll be the same every time they turn up. Great. Um, I, I have one question just that you just touched on that on the other um, variations that you've got in play about the scrum half staying on the tunnel, which seems to make more sense. I mean, from a make more sense. Sorry, it make it makes sense to to create some space for there, and from a refereeing perspective, not having to deal with two pesky scrum halves getting in each other's faces is is no bad thing. So I think we can probably all picture um, picture the benefit there. But the other thing that you was as part of this season is the one and a half meter push. Um, so that's yep. if I've read that right, is is being introduced for all community level again. That we've talked about the whole of the community game there. Is there a a a why and um, why a meter and a half? That's a, a obviously a general law in under nineteen law around the world, but not in the adult game. Um, so why have you brought that in? And does that signal, I guess, the end of the front row forward? Um, that we see some criticism now. I've seen some about that. Say, so I can only push a meter and a half. What's the point? That sort of that sort of thing. Yeah, so this, um, as you can imagine, generates a lot of debate, particularly yeah. amongst certain players. Um, <laughs> and it is important that their contribution isn't um, undermined or undervalued in all of this. Um, but on the flip side is we're also trying to protect them as well because at times they're few and far between and mm. some of the demands of the front row, never having played in one, but I've seen lots of people uh, coming out the wrong side of them, um, uh, we want it to be a you know physical and fair contest, but 
to some degree, um, the distance in which scrums are moving uh, is sort of going over and above what's actually uh, necessary for, for that contest. Uh, particularly the way we want to play the game is usually uh, probably less around CS, more around sort of open play. So there has been a little bit of work done in the space. Last year, we had it applying across all community, um, across all parts of the community game, so all levels of senior rugby. And the feedback that came, that we got was that it wasn't as, as um, it was of value in the lower parts of the community game because it somewhat de-emphasised the importance of the scrum for those participants who actually, you know, sometimes reluctantly going in the front row because just simply just didn't have the, the player base to have big stocks. Um, and and the, the focus of the scrum in those lower levels of community game was less about dominance. It was more around just a way of restarting play, a bit of a push, maybe get a, a hit on, and but if not, get the ball clear and move, and move into open play. Um, whereas in the sort of higher end of our club, um, it was still seen as quite a significant part of um, dominance or getting dominance or advantage. So as a result, we, we've taken that, that feedback from our participants. We've scaled it back to only um, what we call sort of non-premier grades uh, across sort of adult rugby. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to monitor that. Um, Interesting enough, the under-85 grade has for some years played uh, with a restricted scrum push because they don't have the kind of players. They have dedicated props. They, they, they will train like props and, mm-hmm. and they, they think like props, they act like props, um, but they also don't have the physical stature to you know put down 20, 20 contested scrums in a game and, and um, you know, go for total, total domination and gain lots of metres off the back of that. So, um, And some of the and already five grades around the country that have already had, always had a 1.5 meter push restriction um, just to um, retain it or you know keep keep it under some sort of control. Um, the my analyst who looks at this in more detail has said a, a lot of the penalties that have come from sort of those senior those big senior scrums have or when scrum failure has occurred, it, it's all happened well before 1.5 meters has been reached. Yeah. Um, so actually, it's 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 very rare that you can get scrums um, dominating uh, and going over that that point. Right, cool. So that was picked off scrums. We looked at scrum halves. We don't talk about too much about them. Um, the one thing that was in the release when you announced it that I was interested in because it was kind of not touched on at all. There's a bit of a throwaway line. Is about what's next. There was a line there about looking at the breakdown, and you mentioned breakdown right at the very start of there. No change to the breakdown for this year, but it, it the release talked about talking to the game about breakdown innovation. Did, have you got some ideas already about what that conversation looks like? Is there, a, um, is, there, is there a plan in place? There is. So as part of our work this year, we'll be running a series of um, community workshops with participants, players, coaches, referees, around how do we preserve you know, the critical identities of the breakdown, the contest for the ball, but also... Um, uh, uh, reduce some of the, the physical uh, impact you have to endure through the way the breakdown is currently played and then policed. Um, we don't know quite know what that looks like because there's there's a whole lot of you know uh, unintended consequences from anything you do in this space, and there has been some work done in the past around the breakdown, um, and it hasn't always led to positive results. We've ended up with um, a slightly different outcome somewhere else on the field, and uh, and it's one of the things that's really uh, unique about rugby is that um, you can have changed one thing here and it has an impact somewhere else because of the way the game is sure, played. Yeah. I think some of it's um, 
complexity is also some of why people are so in love with it uh, because it has it has those nuances so um we don't quite know what that looks like and we'll be talking to participants to get their views because some of them who do it week in week out uh will probably have a better idea than perhaps you know, some of us who sit behind desks and look at footage so that that's that'll be the work on but certainly quite interested to see how do we preserve the contest of the breakdown how do we ensure that there's an incentive to send players to the breakdown and there's a reward for dominating at the breakdown um, so that we thin defences uh, wider, um, which one of the reasons for the contest of the breakdown is to create that pressure. Um, but also how do we reduce you know, some of the impact? So what we did last year, trial around jackling, um, it, it wasn't overly successful, to be perfectly honest. We put in place a constraint that you could only jackal uh, if you can imagine most jackling happens north-south, yeah. up and down the field. Mm -hmm. um, we put in a constraint controlled in teenage uh, grades around you could only jackal east to west. So you had to get a foot across the ball first yeah. and be facing the sideline before you could attempt to pick and lift, um, therefore exposing um, some of your side, hip, shoulder, etc., to people trying to clean out. Uh and not an uncommon coaching technique. Um, so uh, Steve Hansen, uh, we had some footage of Steve Hansen from some years ago coaching that exact same technique as a way of protecting yourself at the breakdown uh, and successfully jackling. Um, but when we put it into practice, um, what we saw was it was less, players were less inclined to do it and we just saw less jackling, to be perfectly honest. Some attempts, um, but probably not, not quite the same, uh, not the result we're looking for. So that one we've discontinued. Um, and that's all part of our leap and learn approach, which is, you know, if it's not working, don't persevere with it. Yeah, it's interesting you said um, the jackal. I was just thinking we're recording this just before the Six Nations um, kicks off at the weekend. And one of the conversations during the week was Gregor Townsend has said in some of the press that he wants to ban the jackal. Um, he'd like to see the jackal banned. So it's an interesting one to see if anyone is looking at that around the world and, and actually the, the practicalities of what that looks like and how you might word such a, um, a law change. So it's, it's what I suspect um, that's one that will become live even more live in the next so i guess law cycle when world rugby get to that that's interesting is, is there anything else that you guys are, are looking at down south we can uh, keep an eye on over the next few years yeah so um we've we've taken a couple of things from the northern hemisphere and um really tried to put them on steroids so <laughs> um my welsh colleagues are very um very kindly developed game on uh which uh, we picked up about five years ago and and, and rolled it out in 2020 and um, initially it, it was met with a little bit of um, it was a bit ho-hum about whether it would be really necessary uh, but then um, a certain virus came along and completely disrupted yeah. the community game and it became the absolute um, go-to option and a lot of community rugby 2020-2021 was played under game on constraints to the point where it's now really it is a great way of getting the game underway and so um, we're still formulating all our metrics around that. But we, um, anecdotally, we, we think defaults have significantly dropped um, as a result of having a go-to option. Um, what we did, uh, which um, I think was taking what the Welsh had done, and I think World Rugby has subsequently codified it as well, but what we did was um, we rolled it out through our competition structures as um, it was mandatory, um, except where uh, local committees designated like their top grades as premier. So it meant that actually you had to start with a, a game on option and right. you couldn't just choose to ignore it. If a team needed it, they had to you had to 
had to agree to play under the constraints or the the options that you you've carved out together. And so that that was a bit of um that was just taking what the Welsh had done and just going a little bit further and, and actually saying no no it's not an opt in it's you don't have to be opt out and you can only do that if your grade has been designated as a premier grade. So that. That's been really helpful to help us get through. What we're hoping to see now is that more grades will develop um, in that lower level of teenage and adult rugby because um, what clubs will see is actually um, we can run skinny squads, skinny teams, mm-hmm. and it's actually, you know, we've got a way of playing. So we don't need to have a squad of 30, 35 to get through the season. We can get through with a squad of 25, maybe pick up some along the way. If we get a few injuries, just play game on if we have to, and there's a way of playing. And, you know, everyone has certainty that they've got rugby to play. So that's, we're still yet to see the true benefits of that, but certainly we we wouldn't have got through COVID without it. It was just so fortuitous the way, the timing of when we introduced it. So Game On had a whole panel of options, wasn't there, in play for how, how rugby could be played if you chose some or all of them. So smaller starting play numbers, uncontested scrums, no scrum resets, those sorts of things. Did you... When you talk about game on, are you talking about having all of those in play at once or a selection of those to get a game underway? So effectively how it works is that we have um, created, in law, we have created essentially a decision-making tree or flow. And so if a team has not is not able to meet minimum standards of play, for example, they have less than 15 or don't have designated front rowers, yeah. they can trigger game on. And what that starts then is a process between the two managers or the two coaches of working through a series of decisions they have to agree on around how to play the game, which will start with how many players have you got? Yeah. Do you, therefore, what, how much are we playing? Um, you know, is it 12 v 12? Is it 13 v 13? Or is it uneven numbers or whatever? Um, and then it goes on from there uh, around, you know, contested scrums, um, duration of the game, size yeah. of the field. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But in each of those decisions, if you cannot reach agreement, so you can imagine on sidelines, and this is what we were really conscious of, on sidelines having two coaches or managers arguing over, oh, we don't want to do this, we don't want to do that, or we're going to go home. What we removed from them was the ability to be able to opt out. So uh, once you've you've reached a point where you have to make a decision, if you cannot agree, the law tells you what the default answer is. So if you turn up with um, 14 and I turn up with 18 and you're asking, I need to, I need to trigger game on and I need to, pl- I can only play 14. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want us to go 14 v 14. And I'm like, no, I'm going to play my, I want to play my whole squad. If you and I can't agree, the answer is it goes, it defaults to the, low, the team with the lowest number, um, mm-hmm. which means we're playing 14 v 14. And the referee, so then the referee knows, okay, that's what we're doing. And they've got mm-hmm. workflow. Um, same with contested scrums, same with length of the field or uh, size of the field, duration of the game. So all of these things, we've created the opportunity within a couple of minutes to resolve. And if they can't resolve it, we made the decisions for them. And so it's removed a lot of that sort of normal management angst over we can't agree. And we can't move forward and we're off at Mexican standoff. But the reality is we didn't want any of that. And we knew our community didn't want that. So we just made the decision for them. So if you can't decide, this is what it is. And that's been really helpful. Um, And we're looking to automate that into our match management system. So actually they could even signal that pre-game, maybe even on the Thursday night. And the benefit of that is that it means that if a team knows we're playing game on, they don't have enough front rowers, I can release some of my front rowers to go up or go down to go and get some front row time 
if we're not playing contested scrums. So better better rotation of 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 those player that player base. Um, and um, that that's been really successful. And then what we've also had is we've had new teenage grades emerge with every participating team saying we have to play game on. We don't have enough enough numbers. So the whole competition is starting on a game on basis. Right. I, mean, I guess so the, that, the point is we get more people playing more rugby more of the time, isn't it? Yeah, and certainly throughout, you know, because once the game is underway, people people forget about all that detail. Yeah. Players will just move on and say, right, who am I tackling next, or when's the next try coming from? So that that at the essence is what they want, is they want regularity and um, you know certainty. Um, we continue to um, look at um, providing more sort of opportunity in the sort of weight restricted space, both for our teenagers. So we've got a number of national sort of um, events really focusing on weight-restricted opportunities. There's heaps of opportunity for open-weight teenagers, but for weight-restricted teenagers, they don't get as much time in the sun. And so we're just providing a bit more opportunity for them. And then this will be the fourth year of um, of our sort of national club cup for under-85s, which sort of an FA Cup-style competition, which is the only club national competition in the country. Um, clubs only compete for local honours at all levels. Um Provincial unions, their teams compete for national honours, but as part of an initiative to sort of grow participation, particularly in that grade, we introduced a, a national club cup in 2020. And despite COVID, three years of real disruption, that competition has continued to grow. We started with 20 clubs participating nationally in um, 2020 and only five provincial unions, uh, whereas last year we had um, you know, nearly 60 clubs register to enter across 13 provincial unions. So that continues to go from strength to strength. Um, and then a whole lot of really cool initiatives around the girls and women's game um, to, to really try and supercharge what they're doing. So again, a whole lot of new sort of offerings and opportunities in that space. Uh, and one final area just to cover off quickly, because I'm conscious of eating into your weekend, um, is that uh, obviously your participation development across the whole piece, including referees there. Um, looks like there's some great um, innovation and some great drive to increase participation on the uh, with with the ball. Um, what are you doing to match that with folk with a whistle? Yeah, so um, I sort of contribute to the, the sort of the, the referee space in terms of the, the participants as well. Um, our game development uh, team uh, provide most of the leadership in terms of the referee development component. Um, but what um, we're doing at the moment is working through, um, you know, a really critical review of our community referring system, um, looking at what other uh, codes do around how they provide sort of pathways, recognition, um, better experiences for, for referees. Um, we've just finished a piece of work uh, with um, a, um, a PhD student who's spent the last three years studying um, what the experiences, motivations, preferences and interests were of year one to year four referees um, to get a gauge about what does that sort of early early career referee, um, what are they looking for, what are they experiencing, what are the things that are really important to them. So that piece of research was just landed and so that's sort of guiding us a little bit around how we look to modernise, reimagine our community referring system. Still pretty early days, but the reality is a lot of opportunity because the reality is it's, it is like a lot of rugby New Zealand, it's it's really organic in terms of this is you know how it started and this is you know hasn't really changed in some ways and um, it's probably an opportunity just to have a really critical look at that and and how do we make sure it's future proofed. Um, a lot of opportunity around the, the women's game for for referees. Um, so we've just recently um, had um, um, Maggie um, Congo join us um, 
as our uh, female referee development manager. She's, I think, in your part of the world shortly, refereeing one of the Six Nations games. Indeed. So she's uh, of significant um, capability, both in terms of on the field, but she brings a lot um, to, you know, the development of future officials as well. And so she's got a really exciting sort of time ahead for her. I was there. literally posted that news this morning. So that's on, on the on the website now. If you want to go and look for it, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, and it'd be really interesting to actually follow that uh, piece of research that you just talked about from the um, early refereeing years development. So we'll, we'll look that one out. And if it's in the public domain, we'll certainly link to that in the show notes as well. Mike, that's been a really interesting walkthrough of all those things that you're doing down there. Um, really interesting to see. Um, and it feels like there's a sort of collegiate drive across the whole game to make this work. So That'd be very interesting to see that, how that plays out during the season. Anything else you wanted to add? No, yeah, just thanks for having uh, us on. It's uh, really exciting times for rugby in terms of, you know, I think the attitudes around the need for evolution, um, the need to keep critically looking at how do we make the game better, both just in terms of, you know, safer, but also increasing its appeal. Um, because, you know, we firmly believe that the benefits of the game far outweigh uh, the risks doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing more to address those risks, but the benefits of the game are immense. And so um, that's, you know, it's important we do uh, we do focus on that as well. You know, it's easy to get, get sidetracked by all the, the headlines, but there's so much the game's got to offer. So um, some really, really exciting times for the game going in. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Advantage Over podcast from RugbyReferee.net. We hope you've enjoyed the content that we brought to you this week. What we'd really appreciate is your likes, rates and reviews, wherever it is you found it, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher Radio or TuneIn. Please head over there and leave us a review. We really do appreciate those. Um, We'd also um, ask you to tell your referee colleagues, friends, community um, about this podcast this is the only Rugby Referee podcast out there, um, so we hope to get to more earbuds um, over time. We'd also love your feedback um, and your suggestions and your comments, so please let us have them. Um, you can either email us at ref at advantageoverpodcast.com um, or you can find us through the rugbyreferee.net website um, or through Twitter at rugbyreferee.net, which is the same handle you'll find on Instagram as well. We're in all those places, so please do let us know what you think, let us know what you want, um, and how we can help you become better referees in the future. So for now, that is Advantage Over. <laughs>